Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talk to Errol Morris and Elsa Dorfman. She's the subject of his new film, The B-Side. This is Errol's 11th feature documentary. His career was launched in 1978 with Gates of Heaven about a California pet cemetery. In that film, he broke away from the dominant convention of fly-on-the-wall observation and instead interviewed subjects speaking directly to camera. God is supposed to know when the sparrow falls, when the lilies of the field bloom. So surely at the gates of heaven, an all-compassionate God or an all-compassionate supreme being is surely not going to say, well, you're walking in on two legs. You can go in. You're walking in on four legs. We can't take you. I don't believe this will happen. Ten years later, Errol had a breakthrough with a thin blue line that got an innocent man off of death row and set the standard for true crime in documentary. More recently, his films have been occupied with crimes on a larger scale. The Fog of War examined America in Vietnam through interviews with Defense Secretary Robert McNamara. The Unknown Known focused on George W. Bush's wars by profiling Donald Rumsfeld. In between, Errol made a more comedic documentary titled Tabloid, revisiting a lurid story that occupied the press in the 1970s. Kinky sex, religion, the beauty queen, Mormon missionaries, kidnap at gunpoint. There was something in that story for everyone. It was a perfect tabloid story. The B-side feels unique to Errol's work in that it's the celebration of an artist. Elsa Dorfman is a portrait photographer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her camera is a rarity. There are only six in existence. It was created by Polaroid to take pictures in the large format of 20 by 24 inches, almost the size of a movie poster. Like consumer Polaroids, her pictures develop instantly. Normally for a client, she'll take two. The client picks their favorite, and she keeps the other one that she calls the B-side. Now that Polaroid film is discontinued and Elsa is 80 years old, she's mostly retired. In Errol's film, she looks back over hundreds of photos and reflects on her career. That people have said, oh, her work is too sunny. The explanation is, in my life, I've worked hard not to be down. Life when you're down is hard enough. You don't need to walk around with a picture of it. Elsa never had much of a national profile, but in Cambridge, she's an institution. Errol moved there 27 years ago with his wife, Julia, and their son, Hamilton. He told me, The way I describe Cambridge is a city filled with very, very smart people, none of whom have any desire to talk to you. But Errol and Julia became friends with Elsa and her husband, Harvey Silverglate, an attorney in criminal defense and civil liberties. Elsa says about Harvey, So the only people he will have supper with are Julia and Errol, because he'd rather work. We're lucky. (laughs) He's very eccentric. As an aside, I should note that one of Harvey's defense clients is Jeffrey McDonald, the infamous surgeon convicted of killing his family. 
His case was re-examined in a book by Errol called A Wilderness of Error. As our conversation began, Errol gave credit to Julia for bringing the couples together. I think it's a result of my wife. I mean, they all, um, I might add, including myself, love Julia. Everybody loves Julia. And I wouldn't know neither Elsa or Harvey if not for her. Um, I always complain that um, if I were to kill my wife, if I were to kill Julia, I would have the worst public defender in the state of Massachusetts. (laughs) But if she were to kill me, she would have the best legal defense team in America. In Harvey. Harvey and others. So in all the time of knowing Elsa, did it ever occur to you to make a film about her before? I think about making films all the time. And the number of films I think about making versus the number of films that I actually do make. Um, I'm a fan. I've been a fan for as long as I can remember. Probably for as long as I've known well, Elsa. you got that picture, it was really amazing. Well, let me burrow into that for a second. What is it about Elsa's work that attracts you? Um, the simplest way to describe it is kindred spirit. Um, the element of self-presentation. Um, when I think about Gates of Heaven, um, in the context of Elsa's work, it seems like we're plowing the same field. Um, in that movie, it's people presenting themselves to camera. Um, and it is a weird partnership between the camera, the filmmaker, and the person being filmed. That's definitely present in Elsa's work. Um, And of course, I'm not just aware of Elsa's work as work, as a a Polaroid photograph hanging on a wall. Um, My family have had, I don't know how many Elsa photographs, but... I wonder how many, 25? I think it's even higher than that, Elsa. I think Julie once counted. It's a good number, and you have to add to it not just um, Polaroid photographs of our family, uh, Polaroid photographs of the dogs, um, (laughs) Polaroid photographs of my mother and stepfather, Polaroid photographs of Hamilton and his friends. Which are very funny. You know, sixth grade, fifth grade. They're amazing. Now amazing. Would be very funny to look at. Um, and last but not least, uh, Polaroid photographs of two of my uh, favorite subjects, Donald Rumsfeld and Robert mm-hmm. S. McNamara. You photographed them. Yeah. The cover of The Fog of War is Elsa's photograph of Robert McNamara. Taken in in your Cambridge studio? Right. Three shots. So so there are two B-sides for that picture, I think. Mm. 
Either two or hmm. one. I, I can't remember if I only took sh- two shots or three shots. It was shots. McNamara. He probably was really impatient. Oh, he was really impatient. And he... <laughs> And he, and he had the most immaculate Burberry raincoat with not a wrinkle on it. It must have been, you know, ironed every day by a butler. And how about Rumsfeld? Do you have memories of that? Yeah, because they were very chummy. They sent me a thank you note that I have hanging in my bathroom at home. Here's Rumsfeld being interviewed in The Unknown Known. Well, we know that... that in, in every war, there are things that evolve that hadn't been planned for or fully anticipated, and that things occur which shouldn't occur. Errol, I think when a lot of people think about your career, the, they think first about your portraits of morally challenged men like Donald Rumsfeld or uh, Robert McNamara or uh, Mr. Death. Um, not to say that you haven't covered other terrain, but those are the ones that seem to, to stand out the most. And, and I wonder if you think of the B-side as being a change from, from that kind of film. Well, I don't see my work as just work about the morally challenged. Um, I think it's quite diverse, at least uh, I like to think it's quite diverse. Um, my wife made a comparison between the B-side and Fast Cheap very oh, yeah. early on yeah. uh, that there was an elegiac tone to the film In his 1997 film Fast, Cheap and Out of Control Errol interweaves the stories of four eccentric specialists in the fields of topiary, mole rats, lion taming, and this robot inventor. Some people really believe that we are gonna replace ourselves by building these machines, and carbon-based life is on the way out, and the silicon-based life will be what emerges and is the next step, if you wanna make things sequential, in evolution. That may be. There may not be a place for humans in the future if we're really successful at building these systems. They may, in fact, be our uh, legacy to the future. If Fast Cheap seems, in the end, to be about the disappearance of everything, A film ultimately about mortality. It's no accident that the movie was made just after my stepfather and my mother died. I don't know how people, I don't even know how people interpret the B-side. I've read now enough reviews to get some sort of idea of how it's being received. Um, I have trouble, in truth, Sometimes it's described as Errol Morris Light, L-I-T-E. And it's hard for me to see a movie that is so much about loss, death, um, mortality in general. Um, I suppose you could appendage L-I-T-E to it, but I don't quite see it that way. 
I think in many ways it's it's one of the richest things that I've done. It may not be the longest, but I think there are a lot of really, really rich themes. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's all kinds of reasons we could speculate or unpack for why people uh, view it uh, that way. Maybe because it's not about war or politics. Or, um, well, there's some the, people that responded to it overwhelmingly very, very early on, for which I'm grateful, yourself being one of them, <laughs> I might add. Errol shared the B-side with me last summer, and I invited it to the Toronto Film Festival. Like most people outside Cambridge, I'd never heard of Elsa Dorfman, so the film came as a revelation. Here's a clip in which she describes her struggle to obtain one of Polaroid's few 20 by 24 cameras. And you had to be in this inner circle. It was really hard to break the line of their pets. <laughs> really, Because I was never a pet. And I just hung in there. I always was charged for every roll of film. I never got a free box of film. I never got a free SX-70. I never got anything. But anyhow, I can't complain because I ended up with a camera, but that was from being a nag. <laughs> Elsa, when Errol undertook this project, did you have any um, apprehensions about it? No, I didn't. I took it as a hoot. I didn't take it seriously. I I thought, oh, I'll humor Errol. He's it's nice to know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought... I'll humor Errol, and I'll do the best. And no, I did. I went, and I'll do the best job I can. I was very serious about that. And and I will, won't play any games, and I'll be very honest, and 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 I'll do it for, and I'll do it for Errol and Julia. But there was the element of I'll humor Errol along. <laughs> we really didn't know. Because it was, it was only going to be about 10 minutes. So it isn't like I was intimidated. Mm. I didn't take it seriously. So um, I'm curious. It, now that the film is finished, you, you know this is a presentation of your life, and there are choices that are made to fit that life into seventy plus right, uh, minutes. Right. I'm interested to know when you sit and watch it if there are things that are surprising to you, things that uh, stand out to you and what Errol chose to um, focus on and, and what was left out? One thing that surprises me in all the reviews so far, since I've read as many as I can find, <laughs> is that people say she picked up a camera when she was old. Hmm. Old? I was 27. Did they refer to men as old at 27? I don't think so. Hmm. I mean, so that, uh, Errol didn't do that, but the people that are writing about it say, she came to photography late in life. Late in life as if my fertile years were over. I mean, 27. You never thought of it that way. I never thought of that, and I still don't, and I, 
if there were one thing I'd have a campaign, it would be 27 is not old. <laughs> if you haven't decided to be a doctor at 27, you still can go to medical school. You can get your PhD. You can win many prizes in physics, you know. But whoever's, I don't know who was the first person to hitch on to, the, to, the, to that as an example of an older woman at 27, that's like a girl. And you just wouldn't do it to a, a, when mm-hmm. talking about a man. You'd say he's at the start of his career, he's an intern, he was an intern, now he's graduated, you know. Errol, how old were you when you took up filmmaking? Yeah. Well, I started my first film when I was about 27. <laughs> Old. We're old. We're. What do you call it when you're old and you you we're late blossomers? <laughs> yeah. When you published a book in 1974 um, called Elsa's House Book, a, a woman's photo journal. Right. And I'm curious about the the word woman in that title. Why you were using that? Only a man would wonder. <laughs> I'm speechless. Because a woman's experience and a man's experience are totally different, and you, when you're you're um, when you're a girl, you le- quickly learn that you have to think on your feet because you, you don't have many chances. And I mean, it's so different being a girl from being a boy. Hmm. It's terrifying, actually. It's, I, think, I think it's just as hard to bring up a boy as it is to bring up a girl, but it sure is hard to bring up a girl. Even a girl born, like I have a six-year-old granddaughter, and you can see how she, I can see as a photographer, how her smile is all about pleasing. Mm. You know, she's, she's a pleaser, you know. Whereas I even at five was a snarler, like, I'm not going to do that. You know, oh, you know, have some water. I don't want any water. If I want it, I'll get it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I was that at five. And, you know. I asked Errol how the film got started. I had spent an afternoon with Elsa in the garage, and Elsa was taking... Without a camera. Without a camera. Just Just killing time. Like, say, you came back. Elsa, me, and the flat files. And she would take out uh, uh, 20 by 24s, and then she would tell a story about the people um, in the photograph. And I did think at that time, this is a movie. I mean, that certainly occurred to me. And then... I kept not putting it off, but not doing it. Um, it was never on a list of of things that I was going to do, except that over the years, more so than ever, I've come to believe that I should stop thinking about making movies and just make them. So, so when Elsa started pulling Polaroids out of the flat files, I remember this very well. She held up one of them, 
she held it in such a way as to sort of block out almost everything um, except you could see you know the top of her head um, or her hands holding uh, the edges of the, the photograph and I thought is this so good I can't even see Elsa <laughs> and then I thought yes this is really really good she's kind of obliterated in some way not obliterated no, but it's supplanted just, it's what you do when you take the picture off see it's almost like half of that black screen and and so you're holding it for the person to see it and so for me this is a very it's very literal hearing the artist behind the work yes and i and it's very familiar it's i do it, I've done it hundreds it. of times and so so I don't do it without even thinking, oh, this will be good. I, you know, I just, this is how I do it. In the film, Elsa talks about her parents, who passed away many years ago. My father tried to escape from the nursing home. He got as far as the bus stop. He had the sense to wait for a bus. And they sent his favorite nurse out to talk him into coming back into the building. I thought it was a sign to my father's well-being that he could he wanted to escape and he could carry it off. But I was the only one. I do like that very, very much. I find it very moving. Mm -hmm. There is Elsa with a photograph of her parents taken just before they died, and they're holding a picture of them as a much younger couple. You know, I think they were my age now because it was their 50th anniversary. So they were probably 80. I, um, yeah, I like those moments. I sometimes think there are no good movies, but there are good moments in movies. Mm -hmm. And I'll stand up for that one. <laughs> one thing that the movie is able to do that you couldn't necessarily do being inside the studio is to deliver lots of images uh, in a compressed amount of time and and juxtapose these images and um, which you know, perhaps you could do if you had a very big large book of uh, of the photographs but the film does it in which its we're own. thinking of doing yeah uh, the film does it in its own interesting way was was that um, striking to to see your these decades of work flying by in, in the it film? It was like psychoanalysis. The whole experience was like psychoanalysis. Because I had decided, you know, that I wasn't going to be, oh, this happened, or, you know, all the different ways you see people in this kind of, you know, in work about themselves. And I was just going to be absolutely straight. And it you know, we un we went into the garage and we went into the basement and we found boxes that had survived floods and stuff. You know, if you live in a place for 40 years and, and you know, I didn't say, oh, no, you can't, you can't have that or you can't do this or, or oh, no, no, I, you know. And and it, it was, it was like, it so was really So some of this really excavation you, you were doing because of the film. You, all you, of it you, I was doing. You were looking at things that you wouldn't have been prompted to otherwise? Never. My son would have when I was dead. 
No, I never. Maybe. Maybe, right? Maybe. <laughs> He'd go, oh, what's this videotape? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, we had, Allen Ginsberg had died, what, about 20 years ago? We had never, or certainly since the week he died, played the um, tape that he sent us when he was calling his friends goodbye. We had never played it in in memory, mm. and and we and we didn't even know where it was. And we, so we did this. I said, "Oh, you know, really, if I can find it." And we did this major search of our house. Not that we have a big house, but we have a messy house. And my friend found it just lying around, and and and. And it's fabulous. And, you know, I didn't say, oh, that's too personal. I can't, you know, or, you know, or, oh, I, you know, theatrical, oh, I can't stand it. You know, I just, it's, you know, Errol's material. I sort of had that feeling about it that I was going to do this as straight, you know, as unfiltered as possible. So what was that experience like for you to excavate all these things? Each I'm one of you, which... it was like psychoanalysis. Uh-huh. Not that it made me a better person, or, but, you know, it was like psychoanalysis. But it didn't cost you money. <laughs> it didn't cost me money. I didn't, didn't have to be there at 8 o'clock every day. Right? <laughs> we haven't sent Elsa a bill yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was. It was. It was. I felt very naked, but it was what I had decided. Now, one thing that comes up in the film is the fact that the very materials that you've been using for decades um, went out of circulation as Polaroid uh, went out of business and, you know, and it, it forced you into a kind of uh, retirement. I mean, do you feel like it's a retirement? Or I know that you continue to take photographs, um, but, I'm, but I'm curious to, you know, uh, to to understand someone who's had this as a as a passion for so many years and then you you reach a point where you start to wind it down it's very weird because i'm still alive so you know what i mean very much so so. (laughs) (laughs) no i mean it's very weird and 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 it's for that you almost need psychoanalysis because it's very profound and i had I can only tell you that I think about it every day because I have have my studio, I have the camera, I'm trying to have film all the time. I'm really not that strong for camera and the camera of course now is almost 40 years old and it's you know creaky and you know you have to everything nothing works as smoothly as it did before. So I've you know so if people really now I think if people attract me, you know, you know, whereas before somebody called, I I did it. I didn't say, you know, are your kids brats? You know, you know. Now that's a question. Now that's I try to find the answer without coming right out. <laughs> Errol, given that you've been photographed by Elsa uh, over many years and been photographed by other people, like. Everybody. I'm curious what your relationship to portraiture is, and particularly having your own uh, portrait taken. Um, 
one thing that has become clearer to me as a result of making this film, and might not have been clear beforehand, is the real difference between Polaroid photography and Brand X, if you like, everything else. Um, and in particular, the experience of having your photograph taken by Elsa, which is its own really unique experience. Um, and it's participatory. Can you describe that more? Yeah, I can. You go down. Elsa's studio is in the basement of this office building on Mass Ave in Cambridge. It's sort of like this room in a way. No windows. It's subterranean. Yeah. But except we're up somewhere. Yeah, but here we could be under, too. You don't have a feeling we, that you're on, what, the fifth floor or something? No. You go down in the elevator. There are Elsa Polaroids on the walls. And you go into this room, the room with the camera, and... Furniture. There's this worry. Pictures At least I experience it as a worry. Will the picture be any good? Not because of Elsa, but because of me. Um, well, and because of this is a particular kind of photography. We're going to take two shots. It's not you're not going to get thirty shots. It's become very popular now. Uh, Diane Arbus would be a, a good example. Books are published where you get to see Diane Arbus's contact sheets. So if it's the boy holding the grenade in the park, you get to see that photograph, and then you get to see the contact sheets yeah. from which that photograph was selected. And when Elsa tells you in the movie that photography is a lie, um, something, by the way, which I agree with, I hate to slavishly agree with you, but yes, I slavishly agree with you. You look at these contact sheets and you realize how different all of those photographs are, how really different they are. And there are no contact sheets here. Um, there's one, two, three photographs and you don't know how to prepare yourself for them. In fact, there really, properly speaking, is no way to prepare yourself for them. You don't know when else is going to take the photograph. That's very much similar to my experiences with Avedon. Mm. Um, Avedon engages you in a conversation, and then unexpectedly the picture is taken. Um, Elsa, it's about a relationship thing. You're talking to Elsa, you're relating to Elsa, Elsa's talking to you, Elsa's relating to you, and then you may even do something that I do. Someone told me that in an interview, I always start the interview saying, I have no idea what to ask you. Mm -hmm. Which is usually true, right. more or less true. I don't know how to start this interview. I don't know what to say, really. Um, maybe it's a nervous habit. But 
Yeah, in the middle of everything, the picture gets taken, and it's almost always a surprise. You don't know when it's going to happen. It's funny because, see, for, for me, it's not a surprise because there's a minute that I'm waiting for. Because, like, say, for example, there's an awkward 11-year-old. I wait. I'm sort of waiting for that kid to pull themselves together. Like a bird of prey. You know, you know, and then, because I don't want them to look, uh, you know, in the picture. But I'm not going to say, uh, pull in your tongue, you know. So there's not a process, part of this process, so where you say, okay, minute. smile, everybody. So he's waiting for one thing, and I'm waiting for another. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what she's waiting for. <laughs> and, and with a dog, um, I think everybody realizes that I'm waiting for the dog's tongue or tail or... You know, I, th you know, without even saying, oh, let's see what happens. You know what I mean? I think there's a certain group cooperation at a certain point. If, if there's a child or a dog, you know, and there are more than four people, then th then you can sort of count on group cooperation. And then comes the group experience. Um, the, the pulling the photograph down. Um, cutting it, uh, hanging it up on the wall. See, so that's where the, this part comes from. And then watching yeah. together, usually with Elsa, as, or sometimes I'm too scared, I'm apprehensive about looking at the photograph that is emerging. Um, it is... It, it is something so very, very, very different because you're all there together. Watching it emerge on yeah. the Polaroid. So you can't say you're an asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then Elsa would talk about people being disappointed. Now, this is something that I've experienced. I right. hate to even this, say it. No, this is really true. And I, I, don't, I don't know how you, I know it. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. Because, mm. No, you go ahead because it's you. you the experience I'm, of being disappointed with your photograph and you think oh that's not so good and Elsa I remember Elsa telling me this very 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 early on wait 10 years and look at it again <laughs> and of course, I've had that experience. I've had the experience of waiting 10 years. I've had the experience of waiting 20 years <laughs> and looking at it again. And God, am I so grateful that she took these photographs. Um, I've come to really love them isn't really enough. Um, I've come to really truly value them. When I look at these photographs that Elsa took of my mother and stepfather, perhaps it's because they're so big. Um, they're so vivid. They're so vivid. There's the memory of when these photographs were taken. Um, when Elsa says it brings back the dead, that photograph only really takes on a true meaning after the subjects are no longer here. She's right. I want to thank Errol Morris and Elsa Dorfman for speaking with me. 
The B-Side is now playing in theaters released by Neon. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. We're mostly taking a break this summer, but we may drop an occasional episode. We'll return with a regular schedule in September. Thanks to our team, series producer Sarah Modo, sound mixer Tom Micah, web designer Cross Strategy, social media master Jordan Smith, and executive producer Rafael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.